A Springfield teenager devoted to evangelism may have been murdered two months ago in a sacrificial rite of black magic. It was learned yesterday. While Union County authorities declined comment on the mysterious death of 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma, informed sources confirmed that there is evidence to indicate the involvement of teenage Satan worshippers. According to one source who witnessed the discovered wooden crosses were arranged within a trapezoidal perimeter of broken branches and logs. The logs and branches were supposedly arranged in a manner that would have indicated occult symbolism and perhaps a human sacrifice, said the Reverend James L. Tate of Elizabeth yesterday. Reverend Tate is a pastor at the Assemblies of God Evangel Church, where Jeanette De Palma was a parishioner active in drug abuse work. I'm sure Jeanette herself was not involved in anything like that, Reverend Tate said. But I know that many of the other young people in this area are involved. These kids tell us that when they are on drugs, they are in control of Satan. And they do things they don't want to do and say things they don't want to say because the power of evil. It was revealed yesterday that both Jeanette De Palma and her older sister Gwendolyn had drug problems, which were apparently solved a few years ago when Gwendolyn and the entire De Palma family converted to the Church of God. In the Elizabeth Public Library, the Encyclopedia of Occultism must be kept under lock and key, along with other works on the subject because teenagers have stolen many such books. Librarians in Elizabeth and Springfield said that the popularity of books on the occult has increased dramatically within the last three years. I'm Catherine Galvin, psychic medium and true crime addict, and this is Murder and Mediumship. It is no secret that it's been a bit of a chaotic existence over here in Catherine land. With just a few weeks left until the kids go back to school, I would be lying if I said I wasn't super excited to get back to business as usual. Never in a million years did I think I would be running my own business that was especially one that was sold out months in advance at the beginning of this year. And our childcare experienced a lot of personal problems over the summer that led my kids to being home full time instead of being gone a few days a week for me to keep working during the day. And with my husband working as much as he does, I think it's clear that I was in well over my head over the summer. And it was uncharted territory for sure. So to those of you who have been on this ride with me and are so supportive and understanding, I cannot thank you enough. I know I cannot thank you enough. And for everyone who's still coming back and listening to the show, an even bigger thank you. With that being said, a new schedule has been posted in Patreon for Patreon exclusive interviews. The July interview unfortunately got pushed back and will now be taking place on Tuesday, August 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will be connecting to none other than serial killer Israel Keys. If you're not here for that sort of thing, then know too that there are tiers of Patreon that include more love and light for those of us who are deeply into all things creepy and gruesome. We need to make sure that we keep our vibration up, stay grounded, and remain more energetically aware. This is why other tiers skip the killer interviews and stick to a monthly energetic outlook as well as weekly energy forecasts, each paired with a journal prompt for that week. Again, because July was missed and August still gets its own killer interview, the following week on August 29th at 8 p.m., we'll be doing another interview and this time with H.H. Holmes. Little did I know, 
And I know maybe you think this is all just like BS, but I did not realize that there was a special on HH Homes coming out. I think soon, if it hasn't already, again, I don't feel like I get to watch anything on TV that is what I want to watch until the kids are asleep. And at that point, I'm going to bed or doing this. So I had no idea this was coming out. My husband actually informed me when I told him that I had picked HH Homes for the end of the month. And he was like, oh, you know, there's a special coming, blah, 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 blah. I don't remember if it was Hulu or Netflix, but if y'all know, I would love to hear. I know I can do a quick Google myself, but these interviews are sometimes released to the general public. The only way to participate in the interviewing process, though, and the episode itself is to join us via Patreon, which you can, of course, always find in the show notes. That's a lot of business. And I know you're dying to know what the hell the beginning of this episode was all about. So now to just how the body of 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma was found at the top of that cliff in Hudai Quarry in Springfield, New Jersey. Have you ever taken a dog for a walk and had them pick something up that you can't really say you've ever wanted to have to take away from them? I mean, my dog has grabbed for chicken wing bones that people had just tossed out over their balcony window when we lived in in an apartment complex over, oh my God, over a decade ago. And I know I've ripped a piece of half-eaten pizza found on the sidewalk in that same area out of my other dog's mouth. Super gross for sure was not my favorite apartment complex we've ever lived in. But what if your dog went for its morning run out on its own through the woods and when it came back, it brought you something? And you're probably thinking like cats bringing mice or our hound dog has nabbed a few cute and furry creatures in the past, but a human arm? That's nothing my dogs have ever brought to me. And I can't say that I would know quite what to do with that either, but that's exactly what happened on September 19th, 1972, roughly six weeks after Jeanette De Palma was last seen. Jeanette was born in August of 1956 into a large and incredibly religious Roman Catholic family. She was raised with strict rules from what I understand, but depending on who was interviewed, you could gather that she had different personas depending on the people she was with. And who doesn't at 16? I know my mom thought my sister was a total freaking angel and that girl... We'll leave it at that, just in case my mom listens to this episode. (laughs) Sorry, mom. But what I mean by this is that many saw her, Jeanette, as a little rebellious or even as a wild child, while others like her parents and pastor would have described her, at least to the public, as a devout Christian girl, speaking faithfully the word of the Lord. See, not too long ago, Jeanette's older sister, Gwendolyn, had found herself attending a church called the Assemblies of God Evangel Church, where she had really got back into her faith and loved it so, so much that her family came to check it out, leading them to abandon their Roman Catholic roots, which I feel like is unheard of, but maybe not, at least in the 70s, and, and join the Evangel Church in Elizabeth, New Jersey. One of the people who would have chosen to describe Jeanette as a little bit of a wild child, as in the way a normal teenager is, would have been her cousin Lisa. So Lisa and Jeanette were very close, and the two of them and Jeanette's younger sister Cindy could have been found together fairly often. Well, the morning of August 7th, 1972, Jeanette's parents told her that Lisa had actually run away from home about a month prior, and no one in the family had heard from her. Lisa tells the authors of Death on the Devil's Teeth 
that running away like this wasn't unusual for her, but to be gone for that long absolutely was. It's kind of my impression that the cousins and the sisters all kind of did whatever they wanted, but also that maybe the parents really weren't aware of how much innocent trouble they were getting into. Evidently, Jeanette wasn't just worried for her cousin, but she was pretty angry with her parents for waiting so long to have told her about Lisa being gone. To me, it sounds like Lisa was like her ride or die, you know? So it's not like a teen being angry with her parents is new though, right? And it sounds to me like Jeanette's parents wanted to believe and have others believe that she wasn't ever really up to anything too bad, but she too would run off with her cousin Lisa and her sister Cindy. Lisa even recounts an incident where she and Jeanette had snuck off together and ended up getting into a fist fight. They looked so roughed up that Jeanette's mother Florence was convinced that the girls had been, excuse me, trigger warning, raped. It sounds like she was fairly intense, whether she was out having a good time or working with her church. She did everything with vigor. And later that morning, when Jeanette called when Jeanette called her friend Gail Donahue, Gail asked her if she was coming over to hang out with some of the boys that they had met at Echo Lake Park. But Jeanette wasn't sure she could make it, as her mom was making her scrub the bathrooms that day. And I say this in air quotes because I'm a little perplexed over this, but we'll get to this. So when Gail got upset with her for breaking plans, Jeanette decided she would hitchhike over to Gail's and meet up with her anyway. And maybe it's the mom in me, but I wonder if she finished her cleaning duties before going or if she skipped them entirely, if she pretended she had done it. To be completely honest, I feel like maybe she didn't really have to do that or she had already done it that day, but really wasn't looking to hang out with those two boys. And she had a lot going on. She knew her cousin was missing. I'm sure she was concerned and she was annoyed with her parents. So you can't like, there is no logic in a teenager's brain, right? So who knows? But I think it was a cover-up to get out of hanging out with those boys. Just a hunch. This just kind of sat weird with me, and it's really so unimportant, so I don't know why I'm like blathering on about it. But anyway, Jeanette left and had decided she'd walk to her friend Donna Blattis' house to get a ride from Donna to Gail's. This is where things get a little questionable. First off, there are versions of this story where Florence, Jeanette's mom, had offered Jeanette a ride to work that afternoon. But Jeanette insisted she'd be fine to find her own ride because of her being 16 at all. She had just turned 16, I think it was like three or four days prior. And you know, if if you can remember, because I know it's a little ways back for myself, but I remember feeling like 16 was just such a crucial age. And as soon as you were 16, you could do just about anything. And whatever you couldn't do at 16, you could damn sure do at 18. But 16... It just put the taste of 18 on the horizon, right? So she didn't need her mom to take her. And she wasn't going to work, though. She was going to Gales to hang out with these boys from Park. Jeanette had told her mom she was taking the train station in Summit, three miles away, to take the train to Berkeley Heights to see Gail. Further, Cindy insists that Jeanette was going to see this boy, Tommy. I feel like you guys might need to draw a chart of all of these people, so I do apologize for all of these names who has no further identification, by the way, and that she tried to get Cindy to go to Gail's with her. Gail, however, insists that Cindy never hung out with them at her house because she was too young and it just wouldn't have happened. And according to Jeanette's other older sister, Darlene, this may have been around the time that Jeanette had started dating a new boyfriend who may or may not be Tommy. 
a lot of what happens here is like one big giant game of telephone. And there's really not a whole lot of clarity on what happened even all of these years later. But Donna couldn't give Jeanette a ride that day because she was grounded. And when Jeanette turned around and asked Donna's mom for a ride then, Donna's mom didn't agree to give her one. Rumor had it that Donna's mom wasn't really a fan of Jeanette at all and really didn't even like Donna hanging out with her. So Jeanette left with the intention to hitchhike, which wasn't an unusual thing for any teen in the 70s to be doing. Although I'm willing to bet that it wasn't something Florence knew or approved of if she did know. By the time it was late evening on the 7th of August, Jeanette's parents began to grow a little bit uneasy about her not being home yet, and more importantly, not even calling to say that she would be late. And again, I'm not sure if she was planning on working later that evening. There are discrepancies even over where she worked and the employer saying she never worked there, and there's there's so, so much that is either misreported or misremembered or not documented properly with this case. They called the police and they were given the age-old dreaded, you have to wait 24 hours to report her as a missing person spiel. So Springfield Police Department in New Jersey, as well as many others, suspected that Jeanette had just run away and likely to New York City, given its close proximity. I mean, she had just learned that her cousin, her ride or die, had been gone a month and she was in a foul mood because of it. Anything was possible, really. So obviously, Jeanette didn't come home that night, or the following night, or we wouldn't be talking about her today. Her friend Gail insisted that had that had Jeanette been running away to New York City, Gail would have known about it. Jeanette would have at least told her, especially with Lisa being gone. Two weeks went by, though, and other kids from her school and in the perfectly idyllic neighborhood of Springfield, New Jersey, went to Jeanette's house where they were told by her father that she had likely run away. Darlene, again, her older sister, reported that their mom had told them that Jeanette had gone to the movies and just hadn't returned. And I can only imagine the fear and the concern that parents have for one child simultaneously trying not to cause more fear and unrest with their other children. And I know, again, Jeanette's 16, and she came from a really big family. So if she's 16 and she's got one younger sibling, the rest are probably considerably older than she is. And I know a lot of people are quick to judge and assume that there had to have been foul play with the parents or that they knew more than they're sharing. And there are a few theories that concern Jeanette's parents. But before we even get to the theories, I wanted to put that one to rest on this show at least, because I in no way believe that her parents had anything to do with her being missing at this point. I know in the book, Death on the Devil's Teeth, it's it's briefly mentioned that parents of missing and murdered children in general weren't really looked at back then. And while I don't know how much truth there is to that, I also don't think that it would have revealed anything sinister from the parents. You'll see too, the more that you get into this case that a lot of people in the neighborhood thought the parents were kind of weird to begin with. They thought the whole family was weird, that they kept to themselves that they didn't really come outside too often, that they were kind of like the quiet Roman Catholic converts who were now going to Elizabeth to the evangel church and they were really preachy and it was, they didn't go to like neighborhood parties and get togethers. And it was just kind of, they were a little standoffish, I guess. So anyway, I don't think that the parents were in any way directly involved. 
The family searched, hung up flyers, passed out flyers, all while detectives continued to treat the family as if Jeanette had run away. And I've said it before in the show, and I'm saying it now, and I'll say it again. If a child runs away, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're in need of being found any less than a child who has been abducted. They one, likely ran away for a reason, and two, who knows what they could encounter while they're gone. It's our job as adults to keep them safe, and sometimes that means safe despite themselves. From what I can tell, though, her disappearance wasn't raising too many concerns with law enforcement, and her family was sort of at a loss as to what to do. It would be just about six weeks before police discovered that Jeanette was not, in fact, a missing person, but that the nightmares of her friends and family were coming true, and Jeanette was indeed dead. Her older sister, Carol, is on record saying that she had believed for quite some time that Jeanette would be found in the Wachung Reservation across from Summit Road. Given how powerful our intuition is, I don't necessarily believe that Carol was exaggerating. Sometimes we just know things like this, and we can't really explain why. But I want to take you back to September 19th, when a decomposing human forearm was found outside on the front lawn of a brand new apartment complex, Bellistral Gardens. The superintendent called Springfield Police around 11 in the morning, and dispatch sent an officer to the apartments to investigate the arm reported on the front lawn. The responding officer, Donald Schwartz, knew that this older woman, the apartment superintendent, was someone who was pranked and teased and kind of bullied by the neighborhood children pretty frequently, so he truly wasn't prepared for an actual arm being found at the scene. And if this case truly pulls at you and you need to know more, I really recommend reading Death on the Devil's Teeth, again, linked in the show notes. Buy it straight from the website if you can. Uh, it's phenomenal because he'll go into detail. This author from Weird New Jersey, which is another source you definitely need to look at and read more in depth on. As you know, my episodes tend to be a little bit shorter, but the police officer goes into detail about how the dog that the superintendent had like said that, oh my God, well, a dog brought it down here. They must have, it must've been my dog. And she brings out like this little tiny Yorkie. <laughs> then he asks if there's other dogs within the apartment complex. And finally, someone has like, I think it's a Dalmatian. They have a much bigger dog that it was very clear that the little Yorkie could not have done it. I just thought that was, I don't want to say a cute antidote, but it was a little funny. So anyway, when Schwartz arrived and identified the arm as having been not so fresh, he radioed dispatch to send detectives. And as backup arrived, it dawned on them that the arm likely belonged to the runaway teenager the only person in town who was missing, Jeanette De Palma. The arm was photographed, bagged, and taken back to the station by the police department. In a matter of a few hours, officers Donald Schwartz and Edward Kish and a handful of others were sent to explore the quarry and search that area for whomever the arm belonged to or any sort of clue as to what the hell was going on. Of course, there were other areas being searched, but we're going to follow these officers. They brought in bloodhounds from a neighboring county department, and others went off in various directions searching as well. The area was connected to a dirt road that was being carved out for an interstate, and it was around there that they found the upper part of the arm that had evidently become detached from the lower part as the dog carried it in its mouth. Still further into their track, as they got into the Hudai Quarry, and Officer Schwartz wandered up a cliff there, they found a body, mostly bones and decomposing clothing, laying face down amid a bed of sticks, 
leaves, and dirt with one sandal on and one having fallen off. Officer Schwartz's account of what was seen up there could forever be a topic of question in the discovery of Jeanette as he swore up and down that she was found with a wooden cross over her head, formed out of two sticks, as well as stones arranged in a semicircle over the top of her head. Schwartz also noted that her pocketbook was found nearby, but that her identification was missing. I don't believe the pocketbook was ever actually recovered from the scene, but I'll get into that as well, because there's more stuff that is conflicting as far as that's concerned. But interestingly enough, few others, if any, recall seeing the sticks arranged as crosses or the stones above her head, but simply remember that she was laying on top of sticks and stones, dirt and leaves, typical of what you would find in the outdoors. However, it was later revealed again, as I said, the pocketbook was never recovered from the scene, even though the contents of what had originally been in it were there in a pile. They found a pack of tissues, a Vicks inhaler, a comb, a key ring, a small vial, like a small clear medicine vial with an unknown, excuse me, unknown substance in it. And this vial, they mentioned to how it could have looked, it looked kind of like a coracetin vial. And if you look up, if you don't know what coracetin is for anyone scratching their heads, this would be like a cold medicine type of thing, which matches what Jeanette's mother had said about her having a small cold when she went missing. And it also matches with her having a Vicks inhaler. She also had her lipstick, her eyeshadow, and a small compact. So typical teenage girl things. In the book that mentioned, um, that I mentioned a few minutes ago, and we'll mention again throughout the podcast, they have some really, um, good, like, sketches of what the scene would have looked like. There are photographs out there where the body has been redacted, like, blacked out from the photos, but I, I do feel like there's not, they're zoomed in very close. So it's not easy to see any, like, bigger surrounding area images. So I don't know how accurate they really depict the scene. But there's a lot, again, of discrepancy over what really happened up there. Uh, even her cousin, Lisa, says that she went to the scene, I think it was three days after the crime, after she had been found, and she claimed she saw tiny sticks all over that had been made into crosses, one laid over the other. And a couple of other people will testify to that as well. Well, they won't testify to it, but we'll get into that. Also, so many will get into it. Um, but remember, this is 1972, and evidence preservation and crime processing technology just weren't exactly what they are today. However, in an effort to dry out the clothing that Jeanette had been wearing and to keep the smell out of the office, priorities, they hung the clothing outside of the office over a large air conditioning unit, outside, where the general public could see it, and it was exposed to the elements for days before the chief of police had officers remove the items and they were bagged and sent to the New Jersey State Crime Lab for processing. Meanwhile, the autopsy performed on Jeanette provided seemingly no answers. Her poor body was too decomposed to get any accurate tissue sampling concerning the presence of any drugs in her body, though it did reveal that there was an overwhelmingly large amount of lead in the tissue sample. Some believe that this was because of the amount of lead in the soil that could have been absorbed as she lay there for weeks on end, while others believe she could have essentially been ingesting lead over a long period of time because of the dust exposure her father would have had from the job that he worked. Because again, it wasn't illegal to put lead in lead paint and that sort of thing. Then he would bring those clothes, 
he would bring dust on his clothes home when he would come home from work and then Jeanette could have inhaled it and that could be what led to the toxically high lead content in her body. But they don't even know if that's what killed her. So she was transported to Elizabeth for x-rays in hopes of identifying an obvious fracture or cause of death, but still nothing was found. They couldn't come to any conclusion as to a cause of death, but some have been fairly vocal about the ineptitude of the physician who performed the autopsy, Dr. Bernie Ehrenberg, not a trained pathologist, but a regular physician. Ultimately, it was the family dentist who would confirm that the body on the top of the cliff in Hudai Quarry was definitely, without a doubt, that of Jeanette De Palma. Officer Kish, who had been called to the De Palmas before for domestic disputes in the past, now had to go once again, but this time he headed to the top of the hill in Springfield to tell Florence and Salvatore that their daughter had in fact been found dead in Hudai Quarry. Now, just two days after Jeanette's body had been found by Springfield Police Department, Florence spoke to the Newark Star-Ledger and told them that she had already known for weeks that her daughter was deceased. She was quoted saying, The Lord had given me peace. I didn't understand it, but I just trusted in God and I still have that faith. While some of you may see this as shock or confusion or just grasping at anything to keep your head above water after your daughter's found dead, and with no cause of death to even begin to answer questions, Gail found the responses of Jeanette's parents to be painfully unsettling. To her, they seemed too laid back, and and they just seemed too unshaken by the entire thing, too cavalier. Jeanette was buried at Union Cemetery on September 23, 1972, following a service held, of course, at the Assembly of God Evangel Church with Pastor Tate. From what I understand, a lot of the community came to show their support and to say goodbye to Jeanette, or maybe to catch a little bit of the buzz around her death, and hoping to hear something about what quickly became the talk of the town, not just the town, but the tri-state area. With no cause of death and no idea who could have done this to Jeanette, unless she had of course done it herself, rumors began to fly. Fueled by none other than Pastor Tate, who claimed that worshippers of Satan had killed dear sweet Jeanette after she tried to show them the way of the Lord. The number of theories surrounding Jeanette's death is astounding, and honestly, too much for one episode. I know I don't do this very often, but y'all, you're gonna have to come back next week for part two of the episode on Jeanette De Palma. But no worries, it'll definitely be dropped next week. I promise you will not have to wait longer than an excruciating seven days. Now, during this time, things like The Exorcist had just come out. The country was kind of in a state of satanic panic already. So it was easy to kind of start saying that this is what happened, especially when it started with the dog carrying the arm down the hill. And then they were up in near the watching reservation where it was commonly believed that others, teenagers especially, would practice witchcraft and they would make um, satanic offerings and they were involved in all sorts of things, dark arts related But it's not something that they could very well prove. There are a lot of really interesting stories in Death on Devil's Teeth, and I'm not going to just regurgitate that entire book to you. So we're going to highlight, we're going to share all of the research that I have done, but I will tell you that book is absolutely worth the read. Uh, Before we end this part of the episode, I did something a little different this time, and I pulled some tarot cards for a spread about her disappearance. Because intuitively, prior to the research and prior to using the cards, 
I felt like more than one person could have been involved. And I heard like ritual. I heard words like that. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what I think yet exactly. If it was because it was related to the rumors going on around about her death, or if it was more that that's what actually happened. But there was a witness who was terrified that they had been seen. I I definitely got the feeling that more than one person could have been involved. And there was a witness who was terrified who was seen or could have been identified after being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I do know that the autopsy x-rays showed no clear signs of trauma from a blunt force object, but I still think something was used. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure what, but I see a rock being lifted above someone's head and coming down. And what I will say though, is that this person who witnessed it and didn't actually participate in the act, I feel like they may be why I feel more like more were involved. Even if one person physically committed the act, there were others who played a part as to why she ended up being in a place where she could have been taken there against her will. What the tarot spread revealed was so interesting kind of made the hairs on my spine, on my spine. I don't have a hairy back. Ooh, we just ruined the mood there. Um, The hairs on my arms stand up, but I will be revealing that spread to you next week. So thank you all once again for listening to this week's episode of Murder and Mediumship. I know that my calendar is off for the month of August. And while I am taking appointments for September through the rest of the year, I know that some of you are looking for answers sooner than that. Click the link in the show notes and select the tarot reading option and you can ask a question there and I'll email my response to you with a photo of the cards that helped in answering your question. I appreciate each and every one of you standing by the show during the madness of the last two months, three months, four months, whatever it's been, and I'll catch you next week for part two of Jeanette De Palma, where we will go over theories as to who killed her and as to whether or not there was a cult activity involved. And we're going to get a little bit into Pastor Tate because that man bothers me. I love you all so much. Thank you for being here. And happy manifesting on today's 8-8 portal if you're listening to it on Monday, August 8th.